Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you have a Bible with you, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 8 where we left off last week. We're going to work from verse 8 down to verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're always welcome to grab one from uh, under the chair in front of you, and you'll find 2 Corinthians chapter 1 on page 964. We're going to read verses 8 to 11, and then uh, I'll go ahead and pray for our time together, and we'll go ahead and get started. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in our weakness, depending upon the only source of strength, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Would you lift him up before us this morning? May we see him in your word. And by seeing him, will we not see our weakness and our sin and our need for him? And will we not also see that he is our solution, our strength? our great Redeemer, our great Savior. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. 600 years before Jesus was born, an evil megalomaniac named Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar took prisoners from Jerusalem of the finest young men that he could find to serve in his courts. Among them were Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. These three youths were good-looking and smart and competent and bright, stand-up guys that had probably a great future in front of them. Nebuchadnezzar took them from their home, probably made them into eunuchs, 
and committed them to a life of service in his pagan court. The king stripped them of their Hebrew identity, giving them Babylonian names. And so they became known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, the Lord protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it wasn't long until eventually they and their friend Daniel were appointed rulers over a number of the affairs in Babylon. Well, one day, Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot-tall golden statue of himself, as one does, and gathered all of the rulers and leaders and governors and counselors and treasurers of Babylon together to dedicate this image. As the music would play, Nebuchadnezzar commanded all of these officials to bow down and worship the image, as one does. Any who refused would be thrown into a fiery furnace and burned alive. Well, faithful to the Lord their God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And so they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar and they stood before him, the most powerful ruler of their day, with hundreds of his rulers around them facing certain death. And still they refused to bow their knee. This is what they said. Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, this, as you might imagine, a megalomaniac like Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And he ordered the fire to be heated seven times hotter than normal. He ordered that those three Hebrew men would be bound and cast into the furnace. And there... In the presence of a pagan king and all of his rulers, the Lord himself appeared in the fire with his servant. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he said, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ordered out of the fire. And they came out without a single hair being singed, their clothes unburnt. They didn't even smell like fire. And the pagan megalomaniac king blessed the God of Israel for protecting his servants who had trusted in him, who had set aside his own command who had yielded up their bodies rather than bow the knee to any but the true God. It's good for us to remember the brave and faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is because servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are not promised an absence of affliction. 
But we are promised protection through it. Jesus said, after all, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We are not guaranteed to avoid the fire. We just are promised to never endure the fire alone. And so we can say, as those three Hebrew men said, God has delivered us, and He will deliver us. And we can say with the apostle, as he said in this passage, He'll deliver us again. Even if we're consumed by the fires of affliction, we are comforted in this hope. Christ is risen from the dead. And so we bow the knee to no man, to no God, to none but the Lord. The passage before us today is a spirit-inspired fortification to put steel in the spine of any man, woman, or child who calls upon the name of the Lord. As followers of Jesus, we will all face affliction of some sort or another. And here we learn these afflictions are custom designed by God himself for our good and for his glory. This text teaches us three things. You can see this on the back side of your worship guide if you would like to follow along. Number one, embrace your weaknesses. Number two, Rely on God's strength. And number three, surprisingly, invite others in. So here's the big idea this morning, Cornerstone. Hope in God when facing affliction, knowing that God raises the dead. First point, embrace your weaknesses. This is verse 8 and the first half of verse 9. We do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Well, if you remember from the first couple of weeks that we've spent in 2 Corinthians, you'll remember that this church and her apostle have a long and storied history with one another. Apparently, this church has succumbed to the spirit of the age, and they were kind of exulting in the success, which expresses itself in power and influence. They wondered how God's power could result in such frailty in Paul's life. Weakness, it seemed to them, was an embarrassing lack of gospel power. You're the premier apostle of God to the Gentiles, and you're weak? Doesn't that reflect a lack of faith? Well, I hope you see that not much has changed in the course of 2,000 years. How many of us are still resisting appearing weak? How many of us would prefer much more to flex our spiritual faith muscles? 
How many of us would measure spiritual maturity by the absence of affliction? By the absence of shortcomings? How many of us still think the best church is the one without defects? How many of us still think the best leaders are the ones that are most charismatic? Well, the Apostle Paul would rebuke us. He would not hide his afflictions from the Corinthian church, nor would he hide even his own despair from the Corinthian church. Quite the opposite here in verse 11, we see that he wants the Corinthians to know his troubles. Just look at the words he uses in this verse. We were afflicted. We were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life. We thought we were going to die. Well, Bible students aren't entirely sure what afflictions, in particular, Paul is referring to here in verse 8. We know that after a very fruitful season preaching the gospel in Ephesus, people were coming to faith and eventually a mob chased Paul out of town. So he could be referring to that. That's Acts chapter 19. By the way, Acts chapter 19 is a classic example of how persecution breaks out among Christians. What was going on there is that the apostle and and those who were with him were preaching the gospel. And by the power of God, people were coming to faith in Jesus. They were rejecting the idolatry of their old life and they were worshiping the one true God. Well, what that meant was those people who had idol-making businesses, so they made their living off of crafting idols for people to worship. They were suddenly concerned that this idol-making trade of theirs would fall into disrepute. And so they chased off these Christians, Paul being among them. And so it could be that this is what's happening This is what affliction Paul is referring to here. But it could be any number of afflictions. As you know, Paul has many of them. Whatever affliction he's referring to, here's what he says. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The picture here is of a boat overloaded with weight. The boat is overloaded, and as you can picture this in your mind, as any wave might come, it would splash up over the side, and some of that water would go into the boat and only make the problem worse. Some of you know what that's like. Maybe you're feeling that now, that you feel the burden of your life, like pulling you right to the surface. I like how comedian... Jim Gaffigan describes what it's like to have five children. Have you heard this? He said, imagine you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. (laughs) Maybe that's what it feels like for you right now in your life. Whatever burden the Lord has brought you into, it feels like you're just barely able to keep your head above the surface. Wondering if you're going to have enough strength to make it through another week. If that's true, I want you to know that you don't have to lie about that. You don't have to pretend that everything's okay. 
Your weakness is not a reflection of your lack of faith. Your weakness is not a liability to God's work in your life. Weakness, cornerstone, is not a problem to be solved. It is a reality to be embraced. Whatever affliction you're in the middle of, embrace your weakness. Embrace it. Understand that weakness is not your problem. Self-reliance is your problem. Weakness is not your problem. Self-reliance is your problem. Self-reliance is a cancer. And God will use the least severe means to root it out in your life. Thus, He will bring you time and again to the end of your rope, to the very limit of your resources, to cause you to trust in Him. John Calvin wrote this in commenting on this passage. The fleshly confidence with which we are puffed up is so obstinate that it cannot be overthrown in any other way than by falling into utter despair. End quote. Weakness is just the way of the kingdom. Consider Christ. The one who created all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, came into the world, was made into, made like sinful flesh. The source of all power became weak. The one who was dependent on no one became dependent on a teenage virgin. The one who created all food became hungry. The one who is source of all strength got sleepy. He laid down his life and he gave himself to the power of the Roman cross. He embraced weakness and through God's power was raised on the third day to earn our salvation. He did all of this for your sake and for mine. So what does it say of us when we refuse to embrace weakness in our life? If our Lord showed us His power through His weakness, what does it say of us? when we will not embrace weakness. Weakness is just the currency of God's kingdom. And is for our weakness, we exchange God's strength. So consider carefully what the apostle writes next. This is verse 9 and 10. But that, that sentence of death that we felt was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Does it appear as if the apostle is saying that God's purpose in bringing us to the end of ourselves is to teach us to rely on him? Does it sound like Paul is saying that his affliction was meant to kill him? I mean, why else would he mention the resurrection? Why else would he mention God's power to raise the dead? He says that we felt that we received the sentence of death, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was to make us. God was using it to make us rely not on ourselves, but on him. From this, we can infer a couple of things. Whatever you or I are trusting in during our affliction, whatever you and I are trusting in to deliver us out of that affliction, whatever we're expecting will get us through that mess, whatever we're hoping will lighten the load in our boat, if it is not Christ, it is a disease to our soul. And the Lord in His kindness will use the least of your means to cause us to loosen our grip on that thing in order that we would grab a hold of Him. Paul says something similar to the Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13 he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with us, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, you have an anchor in the storm. You have a hope. That your God will keep his promises. And that hope is confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Paul wrote. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8.11 Christians do not grieve like others do who have no hope. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is sovereign over our affliction. And the battle that God brings you into is not meant to cause you to discover the little, the the inner little engine that could. The battle that God brings you into is meant for you to discover the big God who did. Embrace your weakness. Depend on God's strength. God raises the dead. Do you think he'll be able to help you in your marriage? God raises the dead. 
Do you think he'll be able to save your son or daughter? God raises the dead. Do you think he'll be able to heal your body? Can you trust him to protect you from slander? Do you think you can trust him to provide for your family? He raises the dead. What storm can he not calm? What disease can he not heal? What fire can he not quench? What addiction can he not overcome? Is there any enemy that's a danger to him? If you feel like the next level of obedience to Christ in your life is taking a risk, can I just ask, what reason has the Lord given you that you would think he won't do right by you? Maybe he's calling you to hand over your heart to someone who's wounded it in the past. Who's likely to wound it again in the future. He raises the dead. Can he not heal a broken heart? Maybe God is calling you to forgive someone who has offended you. Can you not trust that he has your best interest in mind? Maybe God is calling you to start reading the Bible with someone. Maybe someone at work. Maybe the Lord's been moving on your heart to look towards that person and invite them to lunch and read the Bible together. He raises the dead. Can He not help you have the boldness to ask? Spend yourself freely on this God. Spend yourself wholly on this God. No one, no one has regretted spending too much on God. However, plenty, plenty have regretted spending too little. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He has delivered us. He will deliver us in this circumstance. We know, we have hope that he will deliver us in the future. You can take that to the bank, Paul says. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we confess, God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, he will At the resurrection, Jesus won the war. Whatever affliction you're going through, he will do right by you. So in the midst of your affliction, friends, pray for deliverance. Pray for it. Not so that you would have a comfortable life of ease, but so that you would be fruitful in Service of the kingdom. 
And just know that these light momentary afflictions are for your good because Christ has already delivered you from the ultimate affliction. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. The judgment of God paid your sin in full. So the ultimate source of affliction in your life is gone. Your greatest need is met. Come what may, you win. If you are in Christ, you win. So if there's affliction that comes into your life, that affliction will cause you to know Christ more. And if that affliction takes your life, then you get to know Christ fully. To live is Christ. To die is gain. But the central principle of the kingdom is this. You have to die before you can be raised to new life. Resurrection is reserved really only for those who have died. You don't need a resurrection until you die. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So I don't know what you think about your biggest problem. I don't know what you th- when you think, what, what is my biggest problem in my life right now? You might be thinking financial. Maybe you're looking for a good job, earn a good living, have nice things. Maybe you're thinking your biggest problem is relational. You're just looking for someone to love and to be loved or to be reconciled with someone. Or maybe you're nobler than the rest of us and you think the biggest problem in your life is the impact that you need to make in the world, that you want to make the world a better place before you leave. All of those things are good things. But the biggest problem facing our lives, all of our lives, is that there's still a part of us that thinks we're in control. There's still a part of us that believes ourselves to be in charge. There's still a part of us that relies on our own strength to get us through the day. And Paul would teach us, as long as you're clinging on to that, your Lord, your Lord will keep loading down your boat. Keep pulling down until you're just barely above the surface so that you would learn to rely not on yourself but on God who raises the dead. You see what he's getting at there? Some of us just need to let go. 
Pastor, what if I die? Feels like I'm going to die. If I don't, if this thing doesn't deliver me, I am, I am going to sink. Friend, God raises the dead. Just let go. Final point. And it's a rather surprising one, if I'm honest. Verse 11, this is where we'll end our time together. Verse 11, invite others in. Paul says to these Corinthians, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. One of the reasons it seems that Paul wants the Corinthian church to know about his afflictions is that they'll pray for him. Notice Paul says that God will deliver him from peril. God will deliver us. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. He'll deliver us again. I know that. But you also must help us by prayer. Don't miss this fact. This is the Apostle Paul asking for prayer from the Corinthian church. This is one of the greatest Christians who has ever walked on this planet. And he's asking for prayer. He's planted churches. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's written scripture. This guy's been to heaven and back. And he's saying, we're afflicted beyond our own strength. We thought that we were going to die. Know that God's delivers, but you must help us by prayer. What do you make of that? The Apostle Paul asking for prayer. By the way, those of us who have come to understand the Bible's teaching on the sovereignty of God in all things, and by that we mean that God is ordered the universe as he wants it. He's in control of all things, the big things, the small things. Not Everything is under God's sovereign hand. What, what, what do we do with prayer? If God has predetermined all things, why pray? After all, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ordained all things. So why would we pray? If God already knows what's going to happen, you ever wonder that? There's several reasons why it's important to pray here. Are two reasons very quickly. First is that God has not only ordained the end, but he's also ordained the means. So, so, so God has ordained the end of all things, but he's also ordained the means of all things. For example, all of us here, I think, who understand the Bible's teaching would say that the harvest, whatever it is, is in God's hands. So a wheat harvest is in God's hands. But you still have to sow seeds. You still have to plant seeds. The outcome, yes, is already fixed. But God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish those things. Prayer is not twisting God's arm, making him do something he would have never done had you not prayed. No, Prayer is God ordaining the end and then using prayer to 
act through prayer. The second reason why we still pray, even though God is sovereign, is that prayer is a wonderful way of reminding ourselves that God is God and we're not. Reminding ourselves that we are dependent on Him. Reminds us of our need. Reminds us that He's writing the script, we're not writing the script. So we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We know that the only thing we know is that we're going to have to trust God tomorrow, and so we're going to pray. Prayer is a way to express our constant dependence on God. Understanding that without God, we accomplish nothing. We are nothing. Fully dependent on Him. And so we pray, and we ask for help, and we ask for direction, and we ask for deliverance. Which brings us back to verse 11. Paul, the strong and great apostle, weak and asking for prayer. Something I've noticed. Strong Christians ask other Christians to pray for them. But weak Christians, depending on themselves, rarely do that. When was the last time you asked someone to pray for you? For something specific in your life? Think about the last time you asked someone to pray for something specific in your life. If you can't think of something right off the top of your head, what do you suppose that says? Very possible that you're trusting in your own strength. Possible that you're afraid of appearing weak. And I want you to know, I get that. I understand that. Self-reliance is my default mode. If it is to be, it is up to me. Motto of my life. So if you're thinking, man, I don't know about this, like asking other people to pray for me. I don't want to be a bother to other people. I don't want people to know my junk. I get that. You're speaking my language. But as lovingly as I can say this, that's stupid. You and me are infected by the same disease. We need a new language. We need to acquire the language of weakness. The dialect of dependence. You'll notice in verse 11, a little phrase that we saw last week, this phrase, so that... It's a purpose-revealing statement. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing. The reason Paul wants the Corinthian church to know his need is so that they'll pray for him. So that when God answers that prayer, more people will be giving thanks to God for the answer. Some of us need to listen to verse 11 very closely. And by some of us, I mean me. Two things happen when we neglect to share our prayer needs with our church family. Notice them. Number one, we withhold praise that God deserves for answering the prayers. And two, we withhold encouragement from others who could really use it. 
when they see God answer our prayers. We withhold faith-building encouragement to those who might need it. Who knows? Who knows whether the thing that your sister needs most right now is to see God answer a prayer that she's been praying for for you so that when she has to go through a similar situation, she can trust that she knows God answers prayer. I remember when he answered Mary's prayer. I remember it. Here I am over here thinking that my problems are my own. I don't want people knowing my business. I don't want people to judge me, think I'm weak. But friends, when we keep our prayers to ourselves, we withhold praise from God that He deserves when He answers those prayers. Think of it like this. Maybe you've been praying because, um, you know, you need to forgive someone. And you're having a really tough time forgiving them. And you've been praying that the Lord would enable you to forgive them. And maybe God answers that prayer. Praise the Lord. God answers prayers. But imagine how different it would be if while you're struggling to forgive, you asked your church family to pray for you. And then when God answers that prayer and you're enabled to forgive, it's not just you saying, praise the Lord. It's all of us. So that next time when I need to forgive someone, I can remember how he enabled you to forgive someone. We don't know what the Lord will use our prayer requests to do. Perhaps it could be the very thing that your brother needs to get him through another week. And here I am still thinking, my problems are my own. But it would seem to me that it is in our own spiritual interest to tell others about our needs and ask them to pray for us and to involve others in praying for them and them praying for us. Don't withhold praise that God deserves an encouragement that we need because you're too prideful to ask, will you pray for me? I'm really struggling. Whatever affliction the Lord has custom designed for your life, remember these three things. Embrace your weakness. Trust in God's strength and involve others. Please stand for the prayer of confession.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, God of all power and glory, the God who raises the dead, we come to you through your Son, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And we recognize that we have no right to ask anything of you. That we have given you no reason to pay attention to us, much less to pardon our sins. Yet because of Jesus, we know that we can approach you boldly, confidently, trusting only in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sake. So because of this, we ask you that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, you know we are a sinful people. Why are we so allergic to weakness? Why do we avoid it at every turn? What are we afraid of? Why are we so addicted to the strong and overcoming? Why do we rely on ourselves so much? Yet, Lord, we know that weakness is the way of your kingdom. And so we ask that you would forgive us for trusting in our own strength. Forgive our wretched pride. Forgive us for acting according to our own understanding and for not acknowledging you in all of our ways. Furthermore, Lord, forgive us for neglecting to admit our need and forget, forgive us for not asking for prayer. Forgive us for having withheld from you the praise you deserve for answering our prayers. Would you forgive us for keeping our problems to ourselves? For thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of others? And would you enable us, your people, to embrace our neediness and weakness? Cause us to see all the ways in which we are not enough. We don't have what it takes. And that we must always trust in Christ who does. Will you expose every strain of self-reliance in our lives and burn them at, with the flame of your cross? Cause us to depend, to depend on Christ and no other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have confessed your sins and you are sincere about that, your assurance of pardon comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. This is what the Lord says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become